Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode 119. And do you, I'm going to ask Tim this question because I oh know boy. Andy knows the answer. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh, I about don't this. know it. Do you this know what great. day it is today? What day it is today? Martin yeah. Luther King Jr. Day. Is that really? Yeah, it, it is. is. Technically, yes. On the day we're recording it or the day we're dropping it? Day the we're day we're recording. Today is. Oh. I know because the post office doesn't go, so none of my shipments are going to go out today. Well, <laughs> so that's today. not the holiday to which I'm referring. Okay, sorry. Missed it. <laughs> there's, there's another holiday. To which I am referring. Okay, it's something to do with The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, and you I don't correct. know it. Warm, really warm. We celebrated it last year. It's not going to help me. Tim will not pass so this do, quiz. So do you, do you remember, like, the, during around Christmas time, we this have like the Gandalf's 12 days. battle with the Balrog? Yes. Oh, boy. <laughs> it is. So this is being dropped on the math 24th. Can we verify that on the calendar? Uh... I don't want lockdown browser. Stop computer. Okay. Yeah, it is on the 24th, which on January 15th, <clears throat> that was the day that Gandalf fell from the Bridge of Khazadum. Okay. And he fought the Balrog for 10 days, you know, technically 11, but we're going to say 10 because that's nicer. He slays the Balrog on the 25th of January, making the 24th when you're listening to this. Well, I mean, it might not be when you're listening. When we're recording, but it's not when we're recording. It's when it airs. The day that we're dropping it, the yes. 24th, is the ninth day of Balrog. Whoa. Whoa. We're recording this on the second day of Balrog, but, you know, who cares about that? No, it doesn't matter. So, happy Balrog days. <laughs> happy Balrog days. <laughs> Thank you. Do you love that I did that again? I love it. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I did completely forget about it, and then I think it was Saturday Sorry. or Sunday last week, I was like, wait a minute. That's coming up, isn't it? And then I Googled it and I was like, oh, so good. It is coming up. Anyway, so happy Balrog days. So we have, uh, we have a little bit of, I don't want to say, it's not our normal business, but we have some other book business to deal with or podcast business. Books and business. Podcast no. business. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, so we had some. Uh, There's the light bulb. Where's there Tim? Where's Tim today? Trying to drop we literally just to talked Tim. About like, Tim, this is the time. The entire that. order. <laughs> Tim's out. The mail thing is really messing him up uh, today. Balrag days happens and you just, yeah, it's like you're falling down a pit for like a, an hour and a half. I know. And, you know, they made a movie representation of it and, uh, you know, it'd be better if you actually read the book than... Watch the movie. But speaking of watching speaking movies. Speaking of watching movies, you know, we talked about a bunch of movies back in uh, Christmas and one of our writers, listeners, listeners contacted us and said we were interacting with some videos that too approvingly. And we just want to clarify to our listeners, we don't recommend really that you watch any movies. We want you to read and think. And sometimes we've watched movies that we watched back in our days when we were not walking with the Lord. So we might make casual reference to those. And uh, we do not want to recommend really any movies. Um, and, and if you do watch a movie, we would recommend that you use ClearPlay. ClearPlay has been really great. We've been using it in our family just to watch movies with the kids. And it gives you total control over what you pull out or what you want to see. So that has actually been really good. And I will say just to the listeners, uh, I grew up having different 
uh, decision-making processes in my mind, like most young people. And so probably some of those comments and jokes, uh, if I were to stop and think about those movies that I had seen, I probably would not want anyone watching them. And so that was helpful for me to get that feedback. So I'm thankful listener. Mm -hmm. Um, cause we would not, we would want you, we would want as a podcast to push you toward really good things. Mm -hmm. And so if there was any misunderstanding there, we definitely want to make sure you know that we are not approving any of those. But even if we were a little too caffeinated and making too many jokes. Now books and business. We have some things business to tend to. <laughs> books and business. All right. So I've got the book today and the book I have been reading. It, actually, I've been reading a few things, but it's January. So most of my reading has to do with intimacy. And we're trying to stay away from that a little bit more. Um, the book that I'm reading here is The Accidental Feminist by Courtney Rising. This is actually a textbook here at our institution. And it's a quite, it's a really pretty good book. Uh, Accidental Feminist. What is a feminist? She kind of interacts with that. Uh and the various different definitions of feminism. And this becomes an, a, a real issue. I, don't, I do not like the label feminist, and I don't encourage people to take the label. But many people have, have, uh, have said they are feminists, but really what they're articulating is that there's equality uh, between the genders. Well, I mean, if that's how we're going to define a feminist ontological equality, well, I think every traditional patriarchal culture would have agreed, even the Apostle Paul, that then he would have been labeled a, a feminist, uh, according to Galatians 3. So um, I don't think that's a fair definition of feminism, and neither does the author here. She she doesn't, um, she doesn't, she doesn't. She she recognized these the ontological equality between male and female, but she also acknowledges and supports the complementarian uh, distinction uh, between the genders. So it's really a pretty good book. Uh, I am not too far into it. I'm only a couple of chapters into it, but that is the lion's share of the book. Um, she makes several helpful comments. Her exegesis of Genesis three is pretty accurate. Um, she supports a complementarian view. So just to review that, egalitarianism argues and supports the equality uh, between men and women. So uh, this is very consistent with our culture. Uh, equality equals fairness equals justice. Complementarians uh, argue that there is an ontological equality, like they're both people, uh, but they they have different functions and different purposes within the order of creation. And the author supports a complementarian position and takes that label as such, which is something that is being lost in our current cultural moment. The book is a little bit older, so um, so uh, that might be helping us out a little bit. But uh, but as far as like modern day books being written by women, uh, complementarianism is something that very, I don't know, I don't know any recent books that have said I'm complementarian. They all say, well, I'm not egalitarian and I'm not complementarian. They want to try to thread some invisible needle. Um, so so this book, I've, I've really appreciated it. Some of her exegesis is a little bit off. She makes a big deal about the curse in Genesis 3. Uh, the curse um, that God cursed the woman, God cursed the man. God doesn't actually curse the woman or curse the man. There are effects of the fall, but the curse actually is applied to the land and the ground. And as a result of man's sin and woman's sin, uh, but man's sin, he was the the man that was the one that was in charge, and it was his sin that God uh, specifically judges. Uh, there's this battle between the sexes, and she acknowledges that. Uh, she 
makes this statement. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, we have been in a battle of the sexes, but more importantly, we have been in a battle against our creator. So there is a battle between man and woman as a result of the fall, um, but really that battle is connected to our relationship with the Lord. So um, the accidental, I'm accidental feminist. Uh, here's one other thing I really liked about the book too. The woman, Courtney Rising, the one that writes the book, uh, she grew up with three brothers, uh, which is an interesting created an interesting dynamic and how she was kind of tomboyish and kind of had an attitude like I can do everything that the boys can do. And she acknowledges how that actually fed into her being a feminist and and adopting Hmm. feminist ideas unknowingly. Interesting. And that's why she says, you know, this idea of this accidental feminist, she became a feminist and didn't even realize that she was a feminist And I think that that's actually a major issue within our church today, which is why I would strongly recommend uh, our ladies, our lady listeners, to read uh, Accidental Feminist, Eve in Exile, You Who, uh, Creative Counterpart. These are all different titles that I would recommend uh, for our women to be familiar with. Uh, We've actually lost the idea of biblical womanhood, uh, and these authors in these books can help you recapture it. So Courtney talks about how she wanted to have a career. She wanted um, to make a difference in the world. Um, <clears throat> she talks about boy bashing, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Another podcast that I've listened to, The Bear Marriage by Shayla Gray Gregoria. Uh, Shayla Ray Gregory <clears throat> and her daughter. Uh, they've been accused of man bashing. It's kind of an interesting term. I, I hear floating around every once in a while. Well, that's because they are man bashing. It's really bad. If you want to get an illustration of what man bashing is, tune into the Bear Marriage podcast. Um, that would be a, probably an 18 and older podcast, by the way. So um, from a Christian perspective, though. Um, but still, I wouldn't want my son to like listen to that podcast. But for you ladies, like they're man bashing. That's what I really believe is going on. And she talks about boy bashing. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting that this was also one of her symptoms of a um, uh, the feminist movement and the effects of it. And it directly connects to even our theology of the genders and the relationship between the sexes, the battle of the sexes, and even our exegesis of the Song of Songs, chapters 5 and 6, and some of the things that I've been reading and studying of late. So so anyway, accidental feminist, uh, any comments or i've been kind of blabbing for a while i think it's interesting that the um so it's not wrong to want to you know make a difference and have a career and all that but it is interesting that she she identified it as i want to do everything that the boys do Mm -hmm. what do you call it if you like don't want to be like you like there's there's a like there's some sort of a moral issue there Mm -hmm. it's not wrong to want to do those things but like, why well, don't want to be left behind? Is it like pride? I, I can just, I, I would have to think about it longer, but I can mm-hmm. see where there's like, there's probably some sin motivations there that weren't mm-hmm. addressed, she but talks, also feed into it. And yeah. maybe that, that's in the book or whatever. Yeah, she talks about <clears throat> how uh, one relationship that she had, she specifically told the guy, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but it was something along the lines of, you won't tell me what to do. You know, no man's going to tell me what to do. Uh, hmm. kind of a sentiment. Yeah. And then she later, as she matured and grew, she realized, oh, guess what? That's Genesis 3.16 yeah. being manifest in my life. Hmm. Uh, my my uh, desire to assert authority over the man and to 
not be told what to do by some man. Uh, and how she realized later on in life, oh, guess what that is? That's actually feminism and the influence of my culture that work in my life. So I thought that was... I think that's really good. Yeah. And it's a different explanation historically than the more more uh, critical version of power structures mm-hmm. and um, minimize... Or not uh, kind of putting someone... I can't think of the word. Pushing people to the side. Yeah. Uh, Pushing oppress, yeah, marginalizing. That was the word. Oppression, marginalization. My my mic was muted, but marginalizing. Marginalizing, but I, turn but them into butter. What I <laughs> marginalize. You guys are horrendous. Butter not do that. What what? Oh, I can't not comment on. That was really good. Two points. What I would li- what I like about that is that you have the same issue that's dealt with in society, uh-huh. but society has it would be naturalistic or materialistic explanations, and she's understanding that. Actually, there were spiritual issues here the whole time. I, I like that. Yeah. That's that sounds like a very helpful book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she does a good job in Genesis two talking about being a helper and how you're <clears throat> supposed to help your husband, and that manifests itself in different ways. Thought that was a really helpful conversation. So yeah, good stuff. Would you say maybe that the cream rose to the top of that book? <laughs> oh boy! How about I'll give it a seven on the Thinkling's Goodness Scale. I'm really bad about reading books, but I'm gonna put this one as a seven. And uh, yeah, there we go. Sure. And that was that was really good. That was really good. Well, I try to spread the nonsense out <laughs> over, you know, the timing of episodes. Was that churning in your soul for a little while first? Wow, yeah, <laughs> maybe about two percent. <laughs> okay, so listener, let's have a conversation. How do you get from butter to that? <laughs> We're gonna have a conversation and turn uh, some ideas around. Well, watch There's listen tons of them. Listen to my oh, that's smooth so segue that's Ooh. on a roll here. I love it. All right. So listener, let's have a conversation about history. Specifically, why would a Christian want to study history? Uh, So in my job, I teach at uh, a Bible college in Ankeny, obviously, and I teach the Western Civilization 1 and 2 class. And that's a class where we study the history of the Western world. And it's a general education class, which most of you are aware that is a class that you don't have a choice in when you come to college. You have to take it. It's like math and science and all that. So it's not a major for most, and it's not an elective course. So I've often had to wrestle with the question, why would a student value studying history? So I was reading a book, and it started off with this really cool illustration. In the water, there are two goldfish, and they're just kind of hanging out. And another one... Uh, an older goldfish swishes past a couple of small ones and says, how's the water boys? And they turned him water. They ask what's water. So pause for just a moment and consider that goldfish or any fish probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about water. Would you, would you, I mean, we don't know. And Glenn, the guy who wrote this, he says, I've never done studies, so he doesn't know. But you probably don't think a lot, of, a lot about water if you're a goldfish. Just like we probably don't think a lot about the air. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, the title of the book is The Air We Breathe. Ooh. And he's making a historical argument that a lot of our culture has more to do with stuff that we probably aren't aware of. So anyways, the book's been very interesting, but it got me thinking. And uh, so he goes on to say this. He says, goldfish don't see water. Goldfish see what's in the water. They see what's refracted through the water, 
But I assume, yes, I assume, because I haven't done proper investigation, that goldfish don't see the water itself. And yet, there it is. It is their environment. Universal, but invisible. It shapes everything they do and everything they see, but they don't see it. Here's the contention of this book. If you're a Westerner, whether you've stepped foot inside of a church or not, whether you've clapped eyes on a Bible or not, whether you consider yourself an atheist, a pagan, or a Jedi Knight, you are a goldfish, and Christianity is the water in which you swim. It's a really interesting book. And so he's making the argument that everything in our world today is actually affected by Christ's death and then resurrection historically. Now he's going to go through and talk about ethics and values, um, but I think there's been a lot of value in studying history personally for me, and I think there's good reasons for Christians to want to study history. Now when you guys think of studying history, what are, what are common things you think about that people don't like about studying history? Some people just is boring. They don't like it. It's mm-hmm. it's just not something interesting to them, which I always thought was kind of dumb. Of all of the subjects <laughs> I liked in high school, history was the one I liked because it's kind of like reading a story. Yes. I mean, yes. maybe it was the history books that they read and that they were mm-hmm. dull and boring history books, but I find history fascinating because it's kind of story-ish. Yeah, and I do too. And I think there's a reason some people think it's dull and boring. Charlie, did you have any thoughts? Well, I think some people look at history as like memorization. Yes. When things happened, that happened, then that happened, and <gasps> that happened over there, and that happened mm-hmm. over there. And, yeah. the, the memorizing the names and dates. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that there are reasons people don't like history. And then I think sometimes people think that it's just so monolithic. It's huge. How can you know all that historical stuff? So uh, today, what I've brought are three reasons I think Christians should study history, and each one of them has a quote by an author. So the first book that I quoted is by Glenn Scrivener, The Air We Breathe, and it's like why we believe in justice, equity, etc. And they're all values that we all have, but he's saying you shouldn't have those unless you're a Christian. And in a future episode, I'll talk about that book more. Um, But here's the first reason I think you ought to study history. History gives you what you need to evaluate the present. History gives you what you need to evaluate the present. So much of our Christian life is looking at what's going on in culture, whatever it is, and coming to an evaluation. Is that good or is that bad? And a lot of times, stuff in culture is normal to us. It's been going on our whole life, like whatever it is, you know, whatever. I could use the illustration of the book I was reading, The Accidental Feminist. Yeah. She's essentially asserting that this is the air you're breathing and it's affecting you. Yeah. And you're becoming a feminist. You don't even realize it. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's just part of your culture. I mean, right. from like money lending to MMA, like everything right. in between in culture, it's just what's going on. And, and so part of what history does is it helps you to see that the world's not always been the way it is for you. Um, I remember growing up, well, we'll just move on. Here's the quote. So this is from a book called Stuck in the Present. And the author is trying to make the argument that if you don't know history, really the only like world you're able to see is the present. And you may not know that parts of it are optional and or wrong. So he says this, he says, I find that many Christian or I find many Christians uninterested in the study of history. 
This lack of enthusiasm, as I will argue through this book, is not only a shame, but it limits one's formation as a Christian. Ironically, paying attention to what is happening or transpiring in the present does not give you the proper context to evaluate what's actually happening in the present. I'm going to pause the quote here. Essentially, that's kind of like when something is like a, a, like a big storm on social media. Something happens and everyone's weighing in and analyzing it. But you really, unless you have some, something beyond just that present moment, it's very hard to evaluate it. All right, to carry on. He says, we need a longer view to evaluate and make sense of what's going on in the present. We need a grounding in the full sweep of human events. Greater familiarity with the lived experience of our fellow humans throughout the ages gives us, a better, it gives us better tools for living wisely in our own time. Growing in our appreciation of history frees us from the shackles of modern-day hucksters who try to convince us that the present is all that matters. And so he goes on to talk about the ways history is helpful. He says, history frees and forms Christians in a myriad of wonderful ways. A continual study makes one less vulnerable to whatever fads are in vogue at the present. Studying history offers wisdom for every imaginable situation we encounter under the sun. Studying the past puts us in contact with people whose handling of their own challenges supplies us with much needed perspective for our own. So do you think that part of studying history is that it gives us a long view of the world? Go for it. So when you're reading through that, it made me think of Abolition of the Man and Lewis talking mm-hmm. about the propagandist and how somebody is, the, the, the teacher is trying to prepare the, the, the pupil, the student, to not be deceived by the propagandist. And it sounds like his argument is mm-hmm. not just from like fortifying the emotions. That's where Lewis yeah. went with it. He's going saying, hey, you know what? You should educate yourself on history and yeah. the different movements of the ages it's really interesting um well i don't want to be contentious here and if you prefer this translation of the bible it's okay and i'm just pausing a little in case we need to go back and cut this out but there is a movement today that prefers one translation of the scriptures and they make a number of arguments and i remember thinking some of these are not as persuasive to me i think it's a good translation but i i'm not persuaded by their arguments and then i read a book where a guy went through arguments for a specific translation of the Bible. And as he went through them, I kept being astounded that they're identical to a present day movement for one translation. The hitch is that this guy was going through the arguments the Catholic Church made in the Reformation to hold on to the Latin translation of the Bible against Luther's desire to put it into German. And so we're, we have like these present day concerns, but historically that's already happened. So it is interesting like when you see how this works. So so history can help you in yeah. Yeah. making those decisions mm-hmm. to give you a broader perspective and look at your culture yep. and situation mm-hmm. better, yeah. more accurately. And I do want to say I don't want this episode to come off making anyone think that if they don't know history, they're ill-equipped because I do think what you really need is the Bible. But I'll have a caveat about that at the end. All right, so the first reason is uh, because it helps you to evaluate the past. The second reason is it shows you that the present is mutable. What's mutable mean? Changeable. So we talk about God as being immutable, unchangeable, and I'm just saying the past is changeable. So 
C.S. Lewis has a quote about history that's just amazing. And if I had to summarize it, he's going to call history a contrast. So a contrast is uh, a difference or something that shows a difference. So if you ever have a scan called a CAT scan, uh, it, it's something that scans inside your body, but the way they make it work is if they scan your body, it just is just a big blur. So they have you drink this solution that the scanner picks up. And once it permeates your body for about an hour, they can get a good scan of the inside. And they, they call that solution a contrast solution. So history functions like that. So C.S. Lewis says it like this. If all the world were Christian, it might not matter if the world was uneducated. But as it is, a cultural life will exist outside the church, whether it exists inside it or not. To be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet enemies on their own ground, would be to throw down our weapons and betray our uneducated brethren who have under God no defense against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. Good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. The cool intellect must work not only against the cool intellect on the other side, but against the muddy, heathen mysticisms which deny the intellect altogether. And here's the real part of the quote that I think is helpful. He says, Most of all, perhaps, we need intimate knowledge of the past. Not that the past has any magic about it, but because we cannot study the future. And yet something is needed to set against the present to remind us that the basic assumptions have been quite different in different periods. And that much which seems certain to the uneducated is merely temporary fashion. A man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar has lived many times and is therefore in some degree immune from the great waterfall of nonsense that pours from the presses and of the microphone of his, old age, of his own age. The learned life, then, is for some a duty. So I thought, I like what he's saying there is history sort of insulates you from all the nonsense that goes on. Um, again, I don't think you need to have like a full and thorough knowledge of history, but I think reading a history book is okay. So when I was listening to a podcast on the history of Rome, it was really interesting and a little eerie. Uh, at the end of the 178 episodes, the last 10 or so, I believe it was a really good. It was a really good podcast. Um, the last 10 or so were him discussing the reason Rome fell. And the weird thing is, as he's ticking off what's going on in Roman culture in the West, it's very similar to what's happening today. Inflation was super high. Money was almost worthless. Commodities were much more valuable. People were not wanting to be paid in cash. They were wanting to be paid in commodities. And we're not there yet. But if you think of the gold standard from like 100 years ago and where we're at now, very interesting. So anyways. <laughs> and you mean that literally as yeah. the literal gold standard? Yeah. Not like a euphemism of like, oh, this was good. Like, and if you don't know what gold standard is. Yeah. Like why the phrase, the gold standard is the phrase, the gold standards, because hey. it used to be that you had to have the actual thing. Yes. You couldn't have a piece of paper that represented it. So that would be the, the gold standard is that you actually have gold. We used, yeah, we right. used to say that we had a certain amount of gold in a, somewhere in the country backing all of our dollars. Yes. And our dollars representative of that amount of gold. But I don't, I don't remember when 
we abandon the gold standard. I can't remember when this is. It's the 1800s. Okay. It's somewhere late, in the Andrew Jackson 1800s. zone because I think he hated it. Yeah. Um, maybe. Just, I wish I knew my history better. No, but just the other day I saw some uh, interview, someone at the World Economic Forum or, or the maybe, I don't know, somewhere. And it was someone who was in charge of printing money. And uh, when the inflation got really high, they just printed more money. And the guy literally admitted it and they had it on video. And I thought to myself, wow, that's like just admitting that our money is just paper. It's just paper currency. So yeah, anyways, it's kind of interesting. So I think it can help you in the way in that it shows you what reality looks like compared to a different reality. And if you don't have that, then what you're in right now is all you can think about. And then the third reason to study history is that the past can free you from being enslaved, not only to the present, but also to history. So sometimes it sounds like we need the past because it helps us to take the blinders off of what's going on now in history, but equally studying the past and knowing the present can help us to understand what in the past was worth letting go of. So Lewis says the study of the past does, does indeed liberate us from the present, from the idols of our own marketplace, like the things that we are idolized today. But I think it liberates us from the past too. I think no class of men are less enslaved to the past than historians. So today, especially in certain branches of Christendom, I think we do romanticize previous eras. Um, I think this is where you get like the Amish romance novels being popular. Um, I think in theology, there can be certain time periods that we just think, man, they had it all together. It was all good there. But sometimes when you read history, and you get a little bit deeper into that, you see that those time periods had sin and conflict. Like those things were there too. Um, in fact, today you could even think about that similarly today. Like you're, maybe you're in some movement of churches and your movement of churches has certain tensions and if difficulties and problems, and you're looking at another movement of or denomination of churches that's just really going strong. Well, a student of history will understand that what you're seeing is probably the best of the best. But underneath that is the same human nature being displayed. And I think history just shows you that again and again and again. Um, when I studied T.T. Shields and my, T, my THM, he's like a Canadian Baptist. Jeff Straub, historian up there at the time, uh, history teacher, he, he had me look, uh, studying him. And depending on who you read, T.T. Shields was either the biggest monster or the best guy ever for defending the faith. And I couldn't figure out which it was. So I asked him, I was like, Dr. Straub, like, what is he? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? And Straub famously turned and said, he's a, he's a guy. Well, I said, is he a good man or a bad man? He said, he's a man. And his point is that we're not unilaterally good or evil. Like we are sinners and we do what we do. So I think those are three good reasons to study history. Why would someone feel like they're not equipped to study history, guys? Like, wh wh why do you think someone might think I can't do that? Any ideas? It's too much work because uh, of just the monumental amount of literature there. It's just too much. Yeah, I think that's probably where they're going to find the time. You know, there's other things that interest them. I mean, they have these reels on their phones that, you know, they can just pop <laughs> one after another. Wheels on their phone. Real reels. reels. The reels on the phone. The reels Go on the round phone. And round. Round. There's another one. There's another one. There's another one. There's another yeah. one. Oh, wait a minute. That's Half good. an hour has gone by. Yeah. Yeah. Studying history is hard. It takes a lot of work. And also, I think some people are intimidated. Like what you said, mm -hmm. it, it's a huge field. Like I teach history and I feel all, I always feel like, man, you I don't feel know like enough. 
I think that I don't know enough. I you feel, feel like too little spread the, over. Oh, brother. <laughs> Keep going. I was just, yeah, like, like too, too, uh, too much bread. Too little too butter. Too little butter spread over. Yeah. Like butter toast. You guys killed it. I, I, I trashed the quote. I feel terrible. thin. Well, next time you should like butter jump in and spread do it. over too much bread. There, there we go. got the quote right. I was just trying to tee it up. I wasn't trying to say it. He was. He was trying not to say it. <laughs> so a couple of thoughts. Um, John Frame has a book on the history of theology and Western theology and philosophy, and it's really interesting. He's talking about the Greeks. And so I'm trying to read through this and he just makes a side comment and I want to share it. He says this, he's got, we have, he says, we have fragments of the teachings of the first Greek philosophers. And uh, most of what we know about them comes from other writers, particularly Aristotle, who we are not entire, who is not entirely sympathetic. Still, it's less important for us to know what these philosophers actually said or meant. That almost sounds like heresy but hold where he's going than to know how they were understood by later thinkers for it was by these later interpretations that the certain group he's talking about influenced the history of philosophy. Now he goes in a footnote. He says this similarly in regard to other thinkers discussed in this book, for my part, I will be assuming traditional interpretations of these thinkers, even though I know that many of these are controversial positions among specialists. Sometimes you're going to read something on history like, man, I love Abraham Lincoln, or I love Jonathan Edwards, or I love whoever. And the next thing you know, you're going to find someone who's a history buff and says, well, that person didn't really believe that. Yeah. And they've got some specialized knowledge and you're like, John oh. Calvin wasn't a Calvinist. Exa well, he, well, okay. But, <laughs> but, but. That'll happen. And then what that can do is erode your confidence in history. Sure. But Frame goes on to say this. He's, he, he's saying it's less important to know exactly what they said. And it's more important to know how people responded to what they said, because that will tell you what they thought it meant. And what you're really interested in is something different. He goes on to say, I cannot here enter into a detailed interpretive controversy. And I think the traditional interpretations tell us the nature of the impact of these philosophers that they had in later history. So he's saying, even if we get it wrong, if we just look at how the reaction in history took place, we will learn something valuable. So here I think is his point. When you try to study history, there's value in recognizing not only what a person taught with super great precision, but what the people of his or her day thought he was saying. In this way, you learn the storyline of history without getting bogged down in all those gritty details that you don't have time to trace down. And additionally, this learn teaches you much about humanity by doing this method. You see that humans respond in these situations. And this may tell you a lot about their time period. I often say to my Western Civ class that people do what people do no matter when they are. So the brilliance of what he's saying is this. You could like study stuff in the past, study Abraham Lincoln, study Jonathan Edwards, say whoever you want. And even if you get it wrong, but you're looking at how people are responding to what they say, you're learning something about human nature and you're seeing how people respond in situations. And what are we doing in our present situation? We're looking at this political group or that political group or this fringe group or that group or this economic situation. And then how are people responding? And that's where I think it takes us right to our biblical living. Biblical living. Like imperative creation. 
moral thoughts. Yeah, what does God want us to do? Uh-huh. Um, I think like when you think about Peter saying uh, we should live quiet and peaceable lives, we should suffer for godliness, and then you think historically what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's Nero is, is the emperor. It sounds a lot like wisdom. It does. It really does. So you have like the cause and the effect. Yep. And so if you do this, then what's likely mm-hmm. going to be the effect? Yep. Well, history, you could see real... Example after example. So that's why not just reading what the person mm-hmm. believed, but also how people responded to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. As you've kind of been going through a lot of this stuff, I keep going just to Proverbs 1 and mm-hmm. the purpose of wisdom literature yeah. is to train the young man so that they have wisdom. Prudence saying, mm-hmm. hey, guess what? If you do this, then this is the result. So maybe we should do something different. Mm-hmm. And I think there's motivational issues too. So like when you look at the Enlightenment, uh, there's all these philosophers who are like thinkers, and they're all responding against the medieval world. And, and it's like, why are they doing that? What are they trying to get at? So you, you may misunderstand exactly what they're saying, but also you can't learn everything all at once. So I would just say, listener, if you want to study history, don't get bogged down in all of the details, but maybe one way to trace history is as you're reading a book, who said what, and then how did people respond? Okay, then how'd those people respond? How'd those people respond? And that makes it a little more attainable. So that'd be like one tip. Um, Another tip would be to build the frame before you put on the siding. Build the frame before you put on the siding. Um, I tell my students in Bible study class that if you're gonna read a book and understand it, you need to understand the outline of the book first. That way your mind has a place to put all those details you're about to read about. And I think sometimes we read a history book and we literally don't know anything about the time period. So one thing you could do is find a basic outline of history, just a year by year outline and just learn it. So like our kids, Tim, we're in a classical conversations and there's this timeline song and literally they sing this timeline song and they're memorizing like 160 key facts and events or something like that in history. And since my wife and I have been listening to this for the last four years, it's really funny, like there's there's little bits that we have a frame in our mind. And so then when I hear something come out in Napoleon, oh, it sticks there. Now I teach history too, but having a, some sort of a timeline in your mind can really help you. And then here's the last tip. Okay, so I've talked like for most of this episode about why Christians should study history. Here, There's an interview with two historians online that I found. And Nathan Finn is one of them. And one of the textbooks I use in Baptist history is he's one of the co-authors. Uh, he's currently the provost or the history prof at uh, Greenville University. And then the other guy is Robert McKenzie, who is the chair of history at Wheaton. And they were both interviewed in this article online um, about why Christians should read history. And they both said some really interesting stuff here at the beginning. So I'm just going to start off with Finn's answer. He was asked, why should a Christian care about history? Now, he's a history professor. He's taught church history in colleges and seminaries. Okay. And this is what he says. Christianity is grounded in biblical events that Christians believe were real historical events or occurrences. The truthfulness of Christianity depends on historical validity of the events recorded in the Bible. Also, Christians believe that God is sovereign over all things, past, present, and future. The more we understand the past, even the mundane historical past, the better we're able to discern how God has been at work and might be at work today for his glory and for our good. So do you hear in his answer, he's saying Christians are innately historical. Now think about it. The Bible has a lot of history. 
um, some of the most beneficial studies in my life has been studying through the history of Israel in like first Samuel, second Samuel, first Kings, second Kings, and just seeing what happened. So Christians, like our, our book that God's given us is, is partly a history book. Now, Robert McKenzie had five reasons. He said he created us as historical beings. Think about the way you think of your life. Like you think about it historically, you think about what you did and what you did next and what you did next. And then you even think like what you'll do in the future. Um, and so he, he gives a couple of more reasons like that. Um, but I, I thought that was a good thought. Our Bible is essentially historical. And then we're beings that think of our lives historically. There's a debate on animals and animal ethics, Peter Singer and others. And one of the main arguments that animals don't have the same like rights as humans is they, they think animals don't think historically like humans do. So anyways, I would just say, I think that's an interesting little tidbit. All right. So if you want to, if you want to start studying history, I got two recommendations for you. Uh, the first recommendation is a series of books called the story of the world by Susan Bauer, the story of the world by Susan Bauer. Um, these are grade school books that we've been using in our homeschooling. And they are great. They're, each chapter is maybe like three, four pages, and there's like 50 chapters per book. There's four books on the four different like sections of history that they cover. And it's just a story. Tim, you said at the beginning, why was history so interesting to you? Because there's a story. Yeah, you like the story part of it. And so the way she writes this history for grade school kids is it's like one big story. And so you can read a little bit today, read a little bit tomorrow. And what we've noticed is as we've used that with our kids, we have started to pick up on more historical details. And, and it's interesting. You really think like, what's the real benefit to knowing all these stories? But you just, you just watch. You do this and you'll pick up more. You'll note more. Sometimes you just have more to talk about with other. I think really this is a great place for, un, for us to talk about things with unbelievers is to know about history. So I would recommend those, The Story of the World by Susan Bauer. And then there's another book I'd recommend. Now, I've already recommended one book in this series on the podcast, but it's called History, A Student's Guide by Nathan Finn, the guy from the interview. And this is a short book. It's, um, there's a whole series of guides. I've recommended the Art and Music, A Student's Guide. We talked about, we had an episode on that. Uh, I've started the Philosophy, A Student's Guide, A Christian Worldview, A Student's Guide. These are all put out by... Well, I think it's Crossway. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's a Christian company and they're really good introductory books. So if you don't want to start with like little kids history books, which I would still recommend you do, um, then this guide to history could be a great place to start and then just pick up a history book and go for it. Um, I really think that this could be a much better hobby for you than checking up on technology or binging TikToks or something like that. Just pick one book of history and start picking away at it. I think it would be a blessing. So those are the reasons to study history. You guys have any thoughts about that? What do you think? I really think it's a wisdom issue. I think that there's even a responsibility as a parent to teach my child to like history and to uh, learn from history because of its correlation or the connection between causation. You do this, then you get that. You do this, then you get that. What do you get in the book of Proverbs? That's that very thing. Yeah. Yep. And the one who does not um, want to grow in wisdom is called a fool. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So I would make a really strong case, even biblically, mm -hmm. that we should all have a desire to grow in wisdom 
and history is going to help us to do that. So good stuff. Yeah. Sounds good. I, I mean, I just circle, bring it full circle. Uh, I think the, the guy that first put this on my radar was, uh, Dr. Paul that we think that we today are having the firsts of conversations when we're actually not that a lot of the issues that we're working through in mm-hmm. a Christian worldview today, Christians for a couple thousand years ish have been thinking through the ethics of culture and entertainment and life. And so to know those things is going to help you live out the word. So Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many issues in our modern Christian context that early Christians have already thought through and there's, there's writing and history about why they did what they did. And so great conversation. Did you grow up having history classes in your education? Uh, yes. Okay. Do you remember them? Uh, I remember the first one I ever had, which was civics. So we had like a history of government and like how the American government works. And, um, and then from after that, I don't remember them like distinctly. Okay. I'm I'm probably in the same boat. I remember a fifth grade social studies class Mm -hmm. and I never knew what social studies was. I really think you should call it history. I understand social studies is more precise, but I didn't like, I didn't understand the, and I remember like studying a little bit this and that, but it is interesting that like all through high school, I can't remember a single history class. It was probably there, yeah, but I, I don't think it has the same emphasis that it used to, which I, I do think that's coming back in the classical model of education. Cause I think there's a value to it that I'm, I'm not sure modern education is capturing. So I always, I liked history as a high schooler. I was homeschooled. And so a lot of the history was reading uh, mm-hmm. history. That's what it was. So I actually enjoyed it um, because it was a story. And there may have been some natural interest there just because of biblical studies. And that biblical studies is a study of history in a way. Um, so there, there was that. Personally, what I've really tried to... Uh, what do I, just looking more... And this is even part of the classical model. Um, there's a lot of uh, history books... Like uh, Church History in Plain Language, that would be one history book. That's a good one. uh, By Bruce Shelley uh, that you could pick up and read through, but it's kind of hard to get through. You know, it's Mm -hmm. kind of dry. Instead, what I would recommend is instead of getting something huge and broad that's going to go through all of church history and two, you know, 500 pages, all 2,000 years of it, get like a primary source. Uh, I can't remember the title of it, but Benjamin Franklin, he wrote a series. I want to say there were like 21 um, of their, I forget the word that he used, but it was basically arguments or issues that they had with, uh, uh, with England. And, and, and I remember getting my hands on a primary source of those 21 issues that he had with the, the, um, the British government. And everybody always made a big deal about the Reformation or the Revolution and how it's taxation without representation. But actually, that was just like one of his 21. I don't even remember the number, if it was 21 or 25, but it was a bunch. And actually, most of the issues with the British government had to do with justice, Um, the lack of justice in the colonies because of the way that the British government monarchy was handling the affairs in America. So... I, I want you to I would like to encourage you to read primary sources on a lot of that stuff. Well, I always thought taxation without representation was the fact that like they taxed us 
uh, but they weren't here or something. But it literally just meant they were taxing us, but but the colonies had no voice in parliament. Right. So all those justice issues, I, th- I wonder if that mm-hmm. was like the catch, the, you know, the, 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 the spark or something like that. Yeah. On reading primary sources, we read through probably two dozen of the 95 theses the other day in Western Civ. Mm. And that was really illuminating just to see like what it was that Martin Luther was saying. And uh, I'm with you. It, it, it's funny. You think those like primary sources are going to be boring and confusing. Actually, really, really helpful. Yeah. All right. So there was one time I, uh, I, I still have the document. I copy and pasted all of Luther's theses into a word doc and I started changing them. Uh, and I was going to post them on all the doors at faith. <laughs> and, um, you are so anytime horrendous. it said Pope, I like just did a, like a, the, you know, it find and replace. And anytime mm-hmm. it said Pope, I replaced it with Myron Houghton. <laughs> Um, and so I was like just changing the document to like be very faithy and I never, I still have it. I've never done anything with it, but oh, that's you good. are such a prankster. Yeah. That's one way of looking at it. The other is just waste of time. <laughs> I, to be fair, it didn't take that long, but yeah, find and replace. That's, that's, efficient. I mean, I bet there'd be more than 95 if he had Microsoft word. Just, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so one, we're going to close it off with a thought from God's word here. And quick devotional thought, uh, some episodes coming up, we're going to be studying through second Corinthians and looking in chapters two, three, and four. And so really the start of that passage or the, where we're going to start launching into it is in chapter two, verse 14. So I'll read a couple of verses here, but thanks be to God. And this is verse 14, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And uh, so. What Paul's about to do here is I think he's unfolding for us how he views his own ministry. And it's in part a defense of his apostleship, but I think, and broadly speaking, it doesn't necessarily fit. Like that's the only thing he's doing here is to defend to the Corinthians that he is a legitimate apostle. One one little phrase there is that verse 17, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And what's super interesting to me there is he does state something in a negative tone. We're not peddlers, but, and then the, the next phrase, there's one verb modified in a number of different ways by prepositional phrases. We are not peddlers of God's word, but we speak. How do they speak? In Christ, in the sight of God, as commissioned by God, as men of sincerity. So four descriptions there of someone who has very high character and how that is the basis for his ministry. And that character, we'll see this unfold, I think as a result, he would very clearly say that the character he has is a result of the transforming work that started in Christ 
where he believes the gospel and it's continued in the spirit that changes us into the image of Christ. But, but that character is requisite and really the, the bottom line of, of ministry. And so just four great descriptions there to, you know, obviously we're not apostles and many of us aren't even in what we would quote unquote call ministry. But as we go throughout our day, I think the easiest one to pull out of there is sincerity. Are we sincere people, genuine? Like what you see is what you get. You're not hiding things. But the other ones are great too. Uh, We're commissioned by God. We live as if we're in the sight of God. And that word there for in the sight of is a very rare preposition. It's like you're standing in the in the presence of someone who has authority and he's not really the one doing anything, but you're like, you know, you're in a position relative to someone who is viewed as holding the jurisdiction. And, and so like you're, you're doing things like God is right there. Like that's how sincere you are. God could be right here and I'd be fine uh, in, in Christ. And so a lot of great descriptions there of, of high character. And uh, we will get into the, I don't want to say into the weeds or details and other podcasts, but I think that's a great thought to consider. Am I someone of sincerity? Am I genuine? My life, does it, does it hold true to being in the presence of God? Like I'm not a fake peddler, like selling things really cheap, but my life is, is so sincere and genuine. Like God's right there with me. And, and Paul is applying that in a ministry context. Like as he goes from place to place, sharing the gospel, and we might not be going on missionary journeys, but that should be true of us as we go from, you know, house to job to school to wherever, uh, to church, that the people we're around would be able to testify of our genuine character, like Paul testifies of his. And uh, that becomes a talking point uh, as he gets into chapter three, as he unfolds his ministry philosophy. And we'll talk about that on another episode, but that's a great uh, thought to end on. Are you sincere? in your walk with the Lord, that his presence is evident in your life. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.